Hello and welcome to Anomalous Waves, a podcast discussing all things strange. I'm John. I'm Amalia. And over here, brains behind the operation, or should I say, pauperation? Lilliput. <laughs> and today I'll be talking about Madame Alexandra David Neal and her experience with Tulpa creation in her book, Magic and Mystery in Tibet. Ooh. It's very, it's very strange. You're going to like it. I'll be discussing some interesting haunted stores across the United States. Ooh, haunted stores. Mm-hmm. Think twice before you make a Fred Myers run. I think Fred Myers is just a Northwest thing, right? Similar to a Walmart. We also went on a trip for Amelie's birthday. Yeah, we went to Gold Bar. Harry and the Henderson's country. Because it was filmed there. Mm-hmm. And there's a giant Harry statue. Mm-hmm. And lots of little Bigfoot statues. Yeah. There's a little coffee stand there. Yeah, you can get really cute t-shirts. It was fun, and it was just pretty. Yeah, it was pretty. And it was a really nice day. And on the way back, we went to a little town called Salton, Washington, and went to a bookstore. And I was walking around trying to find some cool UFO books, per usual. And I walked around this little corner, and then there was just a mother load. <laughs> the mecca. Of all the, of all the strange books. So I'll be back there soon, now that I know. It's like a little sweet little secret. We also went to Vashon Island, a.k.a. Mari Island, or home of the Mari Island incident. Uh, if you're not familiar, you can go all the way back to episode two, where I'm talking about men in black and stuff. And I talk about that, but it involves a boat patrolman, fleet of UFOs, strange debris that came out of the ship and killed the dog. Gotta whisper that part. Mm -hmm. Kenneth Arnold investigating a plane crash that had the evidence on it. Men in black. It's a wild one. We went to a brewery and we got to see a wedding on St. Patrick's Day, uh, right outside the brewery. It was St. Patrick's Day. Yeah. I forgot about that. It was cute because it was a senior couple that was getting married. So that was fun. He was dressed like a leprechaun and he held a glass of beer throughout the whole ceremony. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. I like that little area. I definitely want to go back. I saw that you just got some new, really cool beaded earrings. I did. Mothman and Fresno Nightcrawler. Yep. I did. The artist makes quite a few little cryptid cuties. Um, I got them from an artist that is the Crawford Craft Studio on Etsy. She also is on Instagram. But yeah, she is an indigenous beater. So if you are into cryptids like us and just all around beautiful beaded jewelry, check her out. And just me bringing that up, Amelia is now probably going to buy multiple more pairs. Yeah, she's got some glow-in-the-dark lightsabers. I'm not even like a huge Star Wars fan. I just want it. <laughs> <laughs> Need it. Gotta have it. And the last thing I want to share before we get into it is uh, this thing that I found that I thought was really interesting that I just, there wasn't really a spot to put it in any episode or anything. So I was just like, I'm just talking about it right here. Um, that's the artist Jim Sullivan. 
and his album UFO. I was looking on Spotify, uh, you know, just for some new music. Came across an album by Jim Sullivan called UFO. Came out in 1969, and it's awesome. I've listened to it like 10 times already. Mm. Uh, Folk, Americana kind of stuff. Lots of lush strings and really cool arrangements. The music was backed by the Wrecking Crew, if that means anything to anyone listening. But the interesting thing about Jim and this album is that he only made two albums and never really received, you know, credit, like, in the moment. So, like I said, 69 UFO came out, I think, in 72. His other album came out, which I think was just called Jim Sullivan. Um, And that was put out on Playboy Records, apparently. But in 1975, after he had lived in L.A., and, like, lots of famous people knew him and would go watch him play, but he just never, like, made it big as far as record sales and that kind of thing. So in 75, he left L.A. to try to make it in Nashville. And he supposedly told his wife and kid that he would send for them, you know, once he started making some money. Now, this record was pretty much lost until it was reissued by Matt Sullivan, no relation, And that's from a little record place here in Seattle, Washington, called Light in the Attic Records. They have a shop at KEXP. It's really cool. But he was so intrigued that he was like, went and tried to track down Jim's story to see what happened. So he left L.A. in his Volkswagen bug sometime between noon and 1 p.m. on March 4th. In the early morning hours of March 5th, He was pulled over outside Santa Rosa for swerving. He was taken to the local police station for a sobriety test, which he passed. He was swerving from fatigue caused by the taxing 15-hour drive. Jim checked into the La Mesa Motel, but police reports later indicated that the bed in his room was not slept in and the key was found locked inside the room. Jim Sullivan's VW ended up outside of a ranch 26 miles from the motel. When the police found Jim's car, it was locked and the engine was dead. Matt Sullivan writes, A number of things were found in the car, including Jim's wallet, his guitar, his clothes, reel-to-reel tapes, cassettes, his silver appointment book, and a box of LPs of Jim's 1972 self-titled album on the Playboy label. Jim's family traveled out to join search parties looking for him. The local papers printed missing person stories, but the search proved fruitless. Jim's manager, Robert Buster Ginter, later stated that during early morning hours of a long evening, Jim and Buster were talking about what you would do if you had to disappear. Jim said he'd walk into the desert and never come back. One of the interesting, like, weird theories, of course, about this is that in the album, he references kind of these long highways and being abducted by UFOs. But yeah, he just disappeared. I mean, they have no, no idea. There was all these search parties and just the fact that he left literally like everything. That list of things, like his guitar, people are like, he would not go anywhere without his guitar. His appointment book, like, It was like all his most important things. 
And it is also strange that his key was inside the hotel still, mm-hmm. locked in there. So it's like he would have had to climb out the window or something, maybe. So it's all just very strange. No one ever knows what happened. They never found any sign of him. So maybe Jim's up there floating somewhere in a silver ship. Anyways, great album. <laughs> Definitely check it out. It blew me away that it was such a good album and that it was attached to this very strange disappearance story. And I had never heard anything about this. Hmm. Anyways, on that note, let's get into it. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Anomalous Waves. When it comes to hauntings, the idea of a grocery store or a clothing store having their own personal ghost fascinates me. Like I like to think that the ghost picks like the veggie aisle to haunt. Why would it haunt the veggie aisle? Because it can. <laughs> That's why. Eat your veggies. So I started to look into are there haunted grocery stores? Because I was kind of hoping that maybe our hometown grocery store could be on the list. It's not. I think it's now a big lots. So maybe I should ask an employee there. (laughs) (laughs) Grocery store number one. It is in Massachusetts. I wish I could do a good Boston accent, but I can't. So in 2019... It's wicked haunted. (laughs) Wicked scary. In 2019, NBC Boston reported on a Victorian-era ghost that was haunting the frozen food section. Wow. (laughs) I love that. I was talking to someone the other day. I was like, just, it's always Victorian. I've said this so many times. It's just always Victorian-era ghost. But that being in the frozen food section makes it so much more fun. So carry on. Well, you know what? They did not have a lot to do back then. So I think they're just like, I want to stick around and see what happens. Because all we had was what? TB. (laughs) All we had? (laughs) Are you? Is that the Victorian era spirit residing in you, speaking out from you? Well, something about that era resonates with me. So it could be. So a bakery employee named Christina Bush claimed she saw an elderly woman in a Victorian-era nightgown and a hair cap standing in the frozen food aisle. Christina looked down, and when she looked back up, she said the woman had disappeared. Just poof, gone. She said she looked kind of, like, melancholy and a little angry, so it was kind of a creepy kind of sense but it was something christina posted in a facebook group shortly after asking if anyone else had ever seen anything strange at the store and the post just blew up oh i love that and it captured the attention of the u.s congressman seth moulton of massachusetts and shortly after the story broke the boston globe looked into the ghost sighting And they wonder if the ghost could be a woman named France B. Hiller, who was nicknamed the Lady of the Caskets. So France called the area home in the 1800s, and she was viewed as a character. She had this obsession with immortality, 
And she's kind of viewed as like a legend for the small town. France and her husband were settlers who settled in Wilmington in 1873 in a large house on Main Street, which is only a short walk from where the store, which is called the Market Basket, now stands, like right down the street. The Hillers, and especially France, were terrified of death and asked to be buried above ground. And a global headline stated the couple began a scheme to conquer death. They hired a wood carver to make four caskets for them, two structures each with coffins nesting inside monumental sarcophagi weighing 2,000 pounds. Now, her husband, Henry Hiller, died in 1888 and was placed in a special tomb built above ground. And when France's caskets were finally done a year later, she had a huge exhibition of her funeral plans with the casket and the mausoleum for viewers to see. In total, her whole scheme to conquer death cost over $232,000. Back then, too. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. Yeah. So after her first husband died, she remarried to a coachman, which was a scandal for the area, kind of seen as marrying somebody beneath her. Mm. I like marrying for love or something. Mm -hmm. Terrible. Yeah, I know. Selfish. She passed away in 1900, and sadly, her tomb fell into disrepair, and in 1935, it was demolished, and she had to be laid to rest below ground. Which is like her biggest fear. Mm-hmm. When the market basket employee, Christina, was shown a picture of France, she said the apparition she saw had the same face as France Hiller. Whoa. And that she was obsessed with immortality. Mm-hmm. That makes the story so much more. And I guess where the market basket is, I mean, that could be a walk that she would take, you know, just like we do, go around the block. At night, you know, so they just wonder. Well, that was not it was one of the coolest ghost stories I've heard in years. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> that is my favorite ghost story in a long time. And I usually, with the Victorian era stuff, I'm kind of like, I can't help but roll my eyes, even though I like it. I'm just like, why isn't there like a, a metalhead ghost from the 80s or like, a you know, there's never like other eras. You know, at one point in my life when I was a teenager, I kept seeing this guy at the store who looked like he really wanted to be Robert Plant. I saw him, like, everywhere. I'd see him at the store. I was at the dump one time with my dad, and we saw him there throwing stuff out. I'm like, how? (laughs) (laughs) How did you know? The next store I'm talking about is in Chowchilla, California. It is at a save mart that is haunted by a ghost called Claude Man. Claude Man. And guess what? He's also seen in the frozen food section. Okay. This is a weird (laughs) parallel you've discovered. The coldness. They like the cold. So the town of Chowchilla, um, it is home to the tribe Yokuts, and if I'm saying the tribe name wrong, I'm very sorry. I tried. I looked up pronunciations. If I got it wrong, forgive me. The Claude Man 
looks as if he has been attacked by something with sharp and vicious claws. That's why they call him that. Now, Pete, a former employee of Save Mart, says, The first time I saw him, I knew that he was dead. He had these gashes in his face, and they weren't bleeding. They were red. You could see the flesh, but there wasn't nearly as much blood as you would expect. Well, I can't lie. At first, I thought of Dirt Clawed. Not like Clawed Man. I thought of, like, Dirt Clods. What? <laughs> you know, like a Dirt Clod. It's just like a chunk of dirt. I thought he'd be covered in dirt or something. <laughs> Why? I don't know. I didn't think, like, Razor Claws. I was thinking of Dirt Clods, <laughs> apparently. All right. Anyways. Like, he, like they get a like mud pie man. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> so Pete says that he and other late shift employees played a game where they would run around the store at night shouting for the ghost to come out or show themselves. Scratch and, me. <laughs> I know. Scratch me, bro. One night there were no customers and they decided to play the game. It was the last time they ever played it, Pete said. He says it was the end of my shift and I had just gone to face all of the stuff in the frozen foods. Face just means to pull it forward so everything looks full. And when he looked up, he was there staring at me, he says. Then he opened his mouth and the most awful stink came out of it. Like he had been eating rotten meat for a thousand years or something. That is very specific. I screamed and ran out of the store. Later, I had my manager pull the security tape, and on it, you could see me reacting and running, but there was nobody there. Wow, that's fun. Mm-hmm. Now, our third and final store is in Galveston, Texas. In 1900, a hurricane pummeled the town, and 6,000 people lost their lives. Among those who didn't make it were 90 children and 10 nuns from St. Mary's Orphan Asylum. Now, today, a Walmart stands where the asylum once stood. Employees have reported lost toys and misplaced pallets, and they think that there are playful poltergeists. Sometimes they hear the disembodied laughter of adolescent apparitions. Now, one employee even noticed a small girl crying out to her mother Yet, she could see neither the child nor her caretaker. Employees and customers alike searched the source of the noise, and yet the girl was never found. So these are just some interesting haunted store stories that I have found. Yeah, those were good, especially that first one. I'm sold that she figured out how to get immortality. Yeah. She was just so obsessed with it, and now she's just going about her ways. Mm Mm-hmm. That she get for burying her underground was not what she wanted. Poor woman. Makes me a little bit scared, too. Go to the frozen food section? Yeah, especially late at night. Because, you know, the other night I had to make a late night run to the grocery store. But now I'm like, I'm going to avoid the frozen food section. So Alexandra David Neal, she was born on October 24th of 1868 Mm. and was very much one of those 
archetypal figures from the 1800s that did a wide variety of things. She was a Belgian-French explorer, spiritualist, Buddhist, anarchist, opera singer, and writer. She's most known for her 1924 visit to Lhasa, Tibet, when it was forbidden to foreigners. So Lhasa is also known as the Forbidden City or Place of the Gods and is the administrative capital of Tibet. She achieved this by disguising herself as a beggar and a monk. She did not bring a camera or survey equipment, but hid a compass, a pistol, and a bag of money for ransom if needed. What? She explored the city for months. Despite her face being covered in soot, yak wool mats, and a traditional fur hat, she was discovered due to her cleanliness and her daily wash in the river. She was denounced by the governor of Lhasa, and I apologize if I'm saying Lhasa wrong, but took off before any real action could take place. So that's just kind of a little taste of what kind of character we're dealing with. Someone who does a lot of things. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm not really here to get into her extensive background, but to explore something quite strange that she experienced during her travels in Tibet that were documented in her most well-known book, Magic and Mystery in Tibet, published in 1929. So the book covers a lot, but I'm, I didn't read the whole book, of course, because I read incredibly slow. I searched for this one section that was referenced in a book I was listening to by Nick Redfern called The Slender Man Mysteries. And in it, he explored the idea of Slender Man being a tulpic creation. Some maybe would say an egregore, but the idea that all these people on the internet kind of were focused on it, and then some people started actually seeing Slender Man and experiencing it. So in it, he talks about Alexander David Neal, and um, I got so interested in that part that I found her book, and then I found the section where she kind of talks about her experiences. So first of all, you know, for those who don't know what a tulpa is, edit John here. I feel like I didn't sum that up very well, so I'm just going to kind of take another shot at it. So for those that don't know or aren't familiar with the concept of a tulpa, it's the idea that an object or a being can be created through spiritual or mental powers. Now, the idea of tulpa, and I would say um, you might hear the term egregore or egregore quite often, in the modern idea of it, which is what led me to reading about the Slender Man mysteries and this idea that um, even a fictional character can possibly take on a life of its own. Now, back when Alexandra David Neal was experiencing this and writing Magic and Mystery in Tibet and also interviewing the Dalai Lama at the time, he had a very specific way to kind of define this idea. Here's his words. A bodhisattva, 
um, which is a being who has attained the high degree of spiritual perfection immediately below that of a Buddha, is the basis of countless magic forms. By the power generated in a state of perfect concentration of mind, he may at one and at the same time show a phantom of himself in thousands, millions of worlds. He may create not only human forms, but any forms he chooses, even those of inanimate objects such as hills, enclosures, houses, forests, roads, bridges, etc. He may produce atmospheric phenomena as well as the thirst-quenching beverage of immortality. In fact, there is no limit to his power of phantom creation. Now, Neil kind of switches up what she thinks and writes the power of producing magic formations, tolkus, or less lasting and materialized tulpas does not, however, belong exclusively to such mystic, exalted beings. Okay, let's hop back in. Now that's why I like it. Because now it's it's attainable by anyone mm -hmm. rather than just this really right below the step of a Buddha, you know? Yeah. Rather than a monk like that, Neil saying that she believes anyone has this ability to create these tulpic forms. And I think she is speaking from experience because she then goes on to mention three specific tales that she witnessed. One was a young man who worked for her needed to leave to go visit his family. So usually she would go on these explorations mm -hmm. and she would have like a group of people with her, you know, carrying things, doing the food, setting up stuff, making sure everything's safe. One of them had to go leave to go visit their family. She instructed him to return with a food supply and to hire others to assist with carrying the load. She said, you know, go for three weeks. Two months had passed and he still had not returned. So she just assumed that he had left her. Now in her own words, then I saw him one night in a dream. He arrived at my place clad in a somewhat unusual fashion, wearing a sun hat of foreign shape. He had never worn such a hat. The next morning, one of my servants came to me in haste. Wang Du has come back, he told me. I've just seen him down the hill. So she says they both continued to observe the man. Uh, he reached a small chorten. I might be saying that wrong. Amelia looked it up. And it's a uh, little Buddhist. Basically a shrine. It's like a Buddhist shrine. Yeah. Okay. They witnessed him go behind that and then did not reappear. So she saw Wang Du come up after dreaming of him one night. And then he went behind something and then disappeared. Whoa. They had no idea what happened. But soon, around dusk, the boy appeared with the food in the same dress and the same strange hat that she had talked about. She questioned him and everyone with him, and there was no way that he could have been there. Yeah. She experienced all sorts of strange things like this. But as you can tell from the way that she wrote that, she needs to verify things. Yeah. She's kind of scientifically minded. 
In the second encounter, a Tibetan painter who was a fervent worshiper of the wrathful deities and took a peculiar delight in drawing their terrible forms, came by to visit one day. She saw a nebulous shape behind him resembling one of his paintings. Neil writes, I noticed that the phantom did not follow him and quickly thrusting my visitor aside, I walked to the apparition with one arm stretched in front of me. My hand reached the foggy form. I felt as if I was touching a soft object whose substance gave away under the slight push and the vision vanished. The painter confessed in answer to my questions that he had been performing a Duthab rite during the last few weeks, calling on the deity whose form I had dimly perceived. And that very day, he had worked the whole morning on a painting of the same deity. In fact, the Tibetan's thoughts were entirely concentrated on the deity whose help he wished to secure for a rather mischievous undertaking. He himself had not seen the phantom. So what's interesting about that is her describing feeling it, kind of the soft mist. She also discusses a third occurrence witnessing a form that resembled the llama that created it. She believed him to be visiting. She sent her servant to get them tea, and then, she writes, when I was only a few steps away from the tent, a flimsy veil of mist seemed to open before it, like a curtain that is pulled aside, and suddenly I did not see the llama anymore. He had vanished. So that's pretty fun. (laughs) The boy returning was surprised, was like, where'd he go? He had the tea. (laughs) Like, what happened? Did he leave without having his tea? So... These are times where it was not just her seeing these things. Yeah. Multiple people would, would witness these things. I related the vision to the Lama, but he only laughed at me without answering my questions. Yet upon another occasion, he repeated the phenomenon. He utterly disappeared as I was speaking with him in the middle of a wide bare tract of land, without tent or houses or any kind of shelter in the vicinity. So she then makes this statement before sharing her own personal tale of tulpic creation. Once the tulpa is endowed with enough vitality to be capable of playing the part of a real being, it tends to free itself from its maker's control. This, say, Tibetan occultists, happens nearly mechanically, just as a child when his body is completed and able to live apart from its mother's womb. Sometimes the phantom becomes a rebellious son, and one hears of uncanny struggles that have taken place between magicians and their creatures, the former being severely hurt or even killed by the latter. So this kind of warning of uh, sometimes once a tulpa is created, no longer needs its creator, can go off and do whatever it wants. She then goes on to tell her tale. So she decided to experiment with this and make her own tulpa, or a thought form manifestation. She wanted to avoid being influenced by any Lamaist deities, which she saw daily in paintings. So she chose an insignificant character, what she said was a monk, short, fat, of an innocent and jolly type. So she tried to make just a nice, sweet tulpa. 
She did these rituals of extreme concentration and these specific rites, and after a few months, the phantom monk was formed. Neil writes, His form grew gradually, fixed and lifelike looking. He became a kind of guest living in my apartment. I then broke my seclusion and started for a tour with my servants and tents. She says the phantom monk joined on the expedition and began manifesting without her thinking of it. So before the expedition, she's like spend, spending a lot of time alone, mm-hmm. purely concentrating, trying to create this tulpa. The phantom performed various actions of the kind that are natural to travelers and that I had not commanded. For instance, he walked, stopped, looked around. The illusion was mostly visual, but sometimes I felt as if a robe was lightly rubbing against me, and once a hand seemed to touch my shoulder. The features which I had imagined when building my phantom gradually underwent a change. The fat, chubby-cheeked fellow grew leaner. His face assumed a vaguely mocking, sly, malignant look. He became more troublesome and bold. In brief, he escaped my control. But she wasn't the only one to see it. Others began to as well. Once a herdsman who brought me a present of butter saw the tulpa in my tent and took it for a live llama. I ought to have let the phenomenon follow its course, but the presence of that unwanted companion began to prove trying to my nerves. It turned into a day nightmare. So this is around the time that she began planning her trip to Lhasa that we talked about in the beginning. I was beginning to plan my journey to Lhasa and needed a quiet brain devoid of all other preoccupations, so I decided to dissolve the phantom. I succeeded, but only after six months of hard struggle. My mind creature was tenacious of life. There is nothing strange in the fact that I may have created my own hallucination. The interesting point in these cases of materialization, others see the thought forms that have been created. I share that interest with Alexandra. (laughs) When groups or pairs of witnesses, you know, see the same thing, there's just something more concrete about it. Yeah. You're like, I didn't just see that on my own. Yeah. I know you and I have experienced that together where it's like, okay, that's not just me seeing that. Can't deny it. Can't deny it now. There's something undeniable about it. Neil writes, Tibetans disagree in their explanations of such phenomena. Some think a material form is really brought into being. Others consider the apparition as a mere case of suggestion. The creator's thought impressing others and causing them to see what he himself sees. In spite of the clever efforts made by the Tibetans to find rational explanations for all prodigies, a number remain unexplained perhaps because they are pure inventions or perhaps for other reasons. I just watched The Craft again, so that also makes me think of a glimmer spell oh. comes to mind there. Maybe uh, I like the idea of you know a case of suggestion, but Alexandra wasn't trained in such things. No. So who knows? I've covered... Uh, 
the Philip experiment in the past, you know, and many other ideas exploring this kind of joint creation going on between the strangeness and the witness. And I really find it fascinating. Are we participating in the creation of some of these things? So this happens a lot, but while I was researching this, I saw a story pop up on fandomsandmonsters.com, the blog. Um, it's really great if you just follow their Instagram and then go on the computer and you can just copy and paste the URL. That's actually the easiest way to find stories I've come to realize on there. But this one popped up right around the time and uh, I thought it was interesting. During August 14th through the 16th in 2017 in Boca Raton, Florida, I saw something reminiscent of a Slender Man. Obviously Slender Man is a creepypasta, but this isn't Slender Man. There's a farm behind my house, separated by a canal. The farm stretches maybe about a thousand feet back before it hits a tree line. A couple weeks ago, I was eating dinner and was staring out at the farm. It was maybe 20 minutes until nightfall. I saw what looked like a really tall gray version of Gumby walk out of the tree line, take two really large lunges, then disappear back into the tree line. It was much too tall to be a person. It was flat, but its legs bent in a way that looked like a plank bending, like how a piece of wood bows when weight is put on it, but springs back when the weight is taken off. Its body, from where I could see it, it was rigid. It didn't look flexible aside from the legs and the limbs were fairly wide. The next night, at the same time, the same exact thing happened, except my parents were with me. It walked on two legs, but it was more like lunges or arching steps than a human walking. I asked them if they saw that and they just said, saw what? Then it happened again the third night. So either my body is giving me random hallucinations in sync with my body's time clock, or there's some weird slender Gumby thing living on the farm behind my house. I haven't been home much recently, so I have been able to look for it again. I haven't seen whatever it was since those three times and was unable to get a photo of it due to how far away it was. Its movements and stride were consistently the same all three days and it happened at the same time each night. I've yet to venture to the farm to look at that area that I saw, but when I do, I'll take photos of anything that looks interesting or out of the ordinary. This was in the middle of a very populated city, so seeing something this outlandish in a human-heavy area was quite strange. Gumby thing. That's a scary description. Yeah, do you remember that show, Gumby? I do. I'm a little scared of cartoons, so that's one that I'm not... I mean, it's cute enough, but I don't think I can watch it. Yeah, well, it would be terrifying seeing it walk in the woods, that's for sure. I know. But, yeah, that popped up right around the time I was listening to Slender Man Mysteries and learning about this. So I found it interesting. And I thought it was a clever thing to notice that, okay, my parents didn't see it. So either I'm, my body's, like, timing these, like, hallucinations to always happen around the same time. Or I'm seeing something. I'd be pretty mad if my body... It's like, hey, you're tired. I'm going to make you see something weird. But yeah, I just thought that was cool. So I wanted to end on that.
Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Anomalous Waves. That was a lot of fun. I can't stop thinking of uh, Claude Man, but in my memory, he's covered in dirt clods. Uh, no, that was that was fun. I liked the grocery store ghosts, and I really like Tulpa, foggy, misty, mind form stuff. So. Oh yeah. Pretty weird, right? End it with a freaky Gumby. Yeah. I always love those archetypal characters from the 1800s, though, like Aleister Crowley and stuff. Like, also Mountaineer. Also that, you know. And I read a lot about her backstory and stuff. I didn't mention a lot of it because there was already so much to go into with just her Tulpic experiences. But definitely look into Alexandra David Neal. Very interesting character. Yeah. We had some leading ladies this episode. So per usual, uh, check the show notes for any interesting links we put in there. Go to anomalouswaves.com for that link tree with everything in it, uh, ways to join the Strange Pals Club. We have a couple new members. Jim Perry joined. Woohoo! Thank you, friend. And CJ. So thank you both. And Yay. here is uh, your Lily Put shout out. So yeah, once again, if you want to join the Strange Pals Club, you can go to anomalouswaves.com for the link or just go to patreon.com slash anomalouswaves. Thanks so much for your support. I'm going to end the show the way we've been doing it lately. I think it's my time, my turn to read a random Liminal Earth story. So I'm going to go to liminal.earth, and then I'm going to hit that random story function. Ooh. This one's called The Lost 40, and it's under high weirdness, thin places, and time distortions. Ooh, that's been something I've been into lately. October 24th, 2021. My family and I have always liked to go on adventures, to visit places, usually hiking outdoors. I planned a day adventure to a place near us, very close to my husband's family's hunting cabin, but neither of us had actually been. It's called the Lost 40, and it's an area of land that was incorrectly surveyed by loggers long ago. As a result, there was just under 40 acres of old growth forest left untouched. It's a little over a mile hike to the midpoint of the loop. It's a nice hike for a family with a four-year-old and a husband who has to be convinced to go in the first place. The place had a special feeling to me in general, almost dreamlike. Uh-oh, failure. We had a great time taking side trails and seeing where they take us before eventually making our way to the midway point. On our way back, we got to go to a place that felt special. We had passed one group earlier, but there was no one around us. The sun was shining through the giant trees. I took out my phone to take a video to capture the weirdness in the moment. I felt very deja vu-like and was focusing the camera on my daughter skipping ahead. All of a sudden, my phone died and wouldn't turn back on. I had charged it the whole way to be able to capture photos, so it should have been fine. At the same time, it almost seemed like there was a light distortion where I snapped out of the deja vu state. I took the messages, put the phone down, and pay attention to this moment. 
I did exactly that, and we enjoyed our time exploring as we hiked the trail out. When we were done and on our way back, I tried to turn on my phone. The battery had drained and it wouldn't turn on until it had a little charge. The whole place had a Shangri-La feeling and felt as though it was a thin place. The feeling is hard to explain, but it felt like the forest reached out and connected. Submitted by Hannah. January 10th, 2022. Tagged Lost 40 National Forest, Minnesota, North Home. That was a nice one. Yeah. It did have a little fae-like quality to it. Yeah. I can understand some of those feelings that they were describing in the story. And I thought it was interesting that instead of being like, oh, what happened to my phone? Just going like, I think I'm supposed to just pay attention. It reminded me a couple years ago when um, when we went to Gearheart, Oregon with my family. And we were staying in that old home that looked like, I think it was built around 1900. And it had a weird shed in the back mm-hmm. that our dog, our Border Collie, was... She kept going in there and looking in the dark corner of the shed. Mm-hmm. And I went in there with my camera. I charged up my camera for the trip. It was all ready to go. And it was a new memory card in there. I took a photo in there. And then it only worked twice. And then it died. And I thought, oh, maybe I just didn't charge it enough. And I went to go put the memory card on my computer to pull up the photos. Memory card went corrupt. I remember that. I have never been able to get those photos. That's so strange. Mm -hmm. I I even tried it in a different camera to see if it would work. Nothing. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah, that was weird. It was weird. And that camera works fine because I charged it again. Brand new. Everything works just fine. It still works today. It's definitely something you hear time and time again, even on the paranormal shows where... The batteries in their camera drain out and mm-hmm. weird stuff. Okay. Well, cool. A little synchronicity for you. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, so I think that's it. Thanks so much for listening. See you later, alligator. Bye. Lily Putt, say bye. Bye. <laughs>